1: Are the canonical Gospels historically reliable? The four canonical Gospels are ancient biographies, narratives of Jesus' life. The authors of these Gospels were intentional in how they handled historical information and sources. Building on recent work in the study of ancient biographies, Craig Keener argues that the writers of the canonical Gospels followed the literary practices of other biographers in their day. In Christobiography, Keener explores the character of ancient biography and urges students and scholars to appreciate the Gospel writer's method and degree of accuracy in recounting the life and ministry of Jesus. Keener's Christobiography has far reaching implications for the study of the canonical Gospels and historical Jesus research. He concludes that the four canonical Gospels are historically reliable ancient biographies. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Craig Keener about his new book, Christobiography Memory, History, and the Reliability of the Gospels. Dr. Keener is F.M. and Ada Thompson Professor of Biblical Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. He is the author of over 30 books, six of which have won awards in Christianity Today. Keener is also the New Testament editor for the award-winning NIV Cultural Background Study Bible and is serving as the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. With more than a million copies of his books in circulation, Keener also serves the global church by teaching and lecturing all over the world. Dr. Keener, welcome to the show.
0: It's it's great to be with you, Jonathan.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. And why don't we just begin by um, you explaining maybe what got you interested in biblical studies and how you became a Bible scholar?
0: (laughs) Thanks. Well, in terms of what got me interested, there was a time when I was not interested at all. I was interested in everything else from the ancient Mediterranean world and ancient Middle East, but except for the Bible, because um, I was an atheist. And when I thought of the Bible, I thought of it as just you know that's what christians believe and i don't agree with them and so but eventually i became a christian and so i mean the bible should have still been interesting to me just from the standpoint of being an ancient source uh, or a collection of ancient sources but once i became a christian it became like the most exciting thing to me because you know before i i i well i wanted to be a physicist Uh, as much as I liked ancient history and so on, because I thought that was the place to find truth. And of course you do find truth there. But once I became a Christian, I said, wow, God has revealed himself to us in, in scripture. Then studying scripture became like the most important thing to me. So um, initially I was just going to, well, I just was reading it over and over. I had to catch up with the little kids in Sunday school. So, you know, reading 40 chapters a day, trying to catch up. But uh, eventually I learned to read it in a more nuanced way because I kept reading it and began to realize, well, this this actually fits into a lot of what we know about the rest of the ancient world. And, um, you know, after eventually a PhD at Duke and, and so on, I just... Uh, kept digging deeper and I'm always, always learning new things.
1: Yes. And this book is definitely representative of that. And so let's dive in. This comprehensive work has five parts. So if we start in part one, you set the stage for this whole work. How would you define the genre of ancient biography? And then in your view, do the Gospels fit within that genre? Um.
0: The second part is fairly easy. Yes, the Gospels do fit within that genre, but the first part is a little bit more complicated in that the genre is very wide. So, you know, we kind of need to narrow down what kind of ancient biography we mean. But ancient biography developed over time. So, you know, the, the first forms of it go back to the classical Greek period. Well, actually, it probably goes back further than that. Uh, ancient or Eastern literature... Uh, even the book of Nehemiah has elements of, of what developed into this. But among Greeks, you have it in the in the classical period, um, where you have uh, Isocrates, who's giving a speech about somebody named Uagoras. And back then, people sometimes they you know they give funeral orations, and you know at a funeral you say just nice things about a person, right? So um, he. He changes it in that it's kind of like a funeral oration, but it's for somebody who's still alive. And then you have uh, Xenophon, who experimented with a lot of different genres, a lot of different literary types. And <clears throat> he writes a biography of somebody he knew named Agesilaus. And it develops from there. But initially, these, bi- uh, we might call them protobiographies. They were like either all praise like you might do in a funeral oration or all blame like you really want to uh, rip on this guy or this person. So uh, it becomes a lot more, uh, I mean, they still have that interest about moral evaluation, but it becomes a lot more, we might say, historiographic as time goes on. So in the first century BC, uh, the very end of the Roman Republic, just before the the uh, the Empire, before Augustus becomes emperor, you have Cornelius Nepos, who writes uh, biographies. We could we could call them that. We don't need to call them proto biographies at that point. He was it was a bit careless sometimes, but at the same time, you know, he's trying to tell you what happened with the person. Now ancient biographies were also interested in teaching you moral lessons or, or political lessons or military lessons, whatever, uh, examples that you could learn from, but they were supposed to do so. the the distinctive characteristic of biography as opposed to just, you know, making something up as, a, as an illustration was that it needed to actually be based on actual events. And so uh, you, you had that uh, and that, kind of emphasis continued on until pretty much the early third century AD. So until the time of Diogenes Laertius, he was he was really careful. I mean, he cites all his sources. Some of his sources are probably wrong, you know, from things that happened centuries earlier. But, you know, when you get to the uh, first century and the second century AD or CE, we're talking about the sources I mean that was the, the historiographic apex of ancient biography. The the overlap between the genres of histor- history and biography was particularly strong at that time, and that's the time in which the Gospels were written. So you know that's that's the period in which you have um, well Philo's uh, biography of Moses. You have Josephus's uh, autobiography. Uh, both, both Jewish sources, you have uh, Tacitus, Suetonius, and Plutarch writing, uh, and especially you know when they write biographies of emperors. So anyway, all that's a, a long way of saying um, ancient biography changed over time. But uh, full-length biographies and, and biographies of public figures, these were at their historiographic apex at, at the time that the Gospels were being written. There there also were some lives of poets and things like that, but some of these are just like a paragraph or two paragraphs long. And it's really I mean, they're still called lives, but the nature of that genre is very different from when we're talking about the you know, the full length lives of public figures, things that are, you know, roughly in the length, usually of the gospels.
1: Yeah, so let's focus on that apex then of that relationship between biographies and history where those two things overlap, which is where you turn next in your book. Were these works considered reliable sources of historical information and if so how how would we know that?
0: What we normally do when we study ancient sources, we we look for comparisons, we look for analogies. Now each gospel and actually each ancient biography differed somewhat, and so you can, you know, some people say, well, the gospels are unique, and the character they describe certainly is different from you know, most most other characters that we we look at uh, from the from the period. But in terms of being a full length study about a particular person, an ancient reader, if they were trying to You know, fit that into a particular genre. They would think of biography. Again, there are differences in the nature of of these. You know, from one to the next. Um, Mark. I'm doing a comment. I'm working on a commentary on Mark now. It'll be a few years before it's out. But uh, Mark is just really distinctive. I mean, Mark. I just love the way Mark does things. But it it almost uh, takes on some of the form of parable too. I mean, it's. It, it's a biography in the sense it's recounting events from Jesus life, but uh just the stuff about the hiddenness the uh the, the secret of the kingdom and so on is uh, it's just beautiful but different biographies have different kinds of emphases so that's that's not unusual um so from mark to John you know there's a range in the kinds of uh even biographies that the gospels are in terms of Luke. I mean, Luke wrote two volumes: uh, the Gospel of Luke and then the Book of Acts. And taken by itself, the first volume could be considered biographic. Taken together, it's it's more like a, a two-volume historical monograph about um, you know the the background of uh, the Christian movement and how it spread in the Gentile world and and so on. But get, getting back more to the um, the nature of your question. Yeah, this was the apex of ancient biography. Now, some of these biographies were more reliable than others, but the basic rule of thumb was they weren't supposed to make up events. So the events needed to be in their sources. Now, the question as to how reliable their sources were is a separate question, and I deal with that some more later in the book. But one one means... Well, a couple means of evaluating, first of all, how closely did they stick to their sources, where we can test them. And we can, we can do that with some ancient biographies. In the case of uh, Matthew and Luke, according to the most common uh, configuration of how the Gospels developed, Matthew and Luke, we can test how they used Mark. And again, we, we see them adapting their sources, usually fairly conservatively, by ancient uh-huh. standards. And then secondly, in terms of evaluating, we ask how old were their sources? How far back do their sources go? Because usually when they were writing about somebody from recent history, they had a lot of sources. It's the same with us today. But when they were writing about somebody from the distant past, often historians and biographers themselves would say, well, we have legend to work with. We're just going to try to do our best with what we've got. So it makes a difference how recent their sources were. Uh, take Arian, writing in the, in the second century AD, writing a biography of Alexander the Great, who lived, uh, it was a 356 to 323 BC. Uh, so Alexander the Great had been dead for four centuries by the time Arian wrote his biography. Now, he has some earlier sources, but he doesn't really have a way to know which one is which in terms of which are the best sources. In the case of the Gospels, Mark is usually dated about four decades after Jesus' execution. So we're talking about, you know, not four centuries, but four decades. And I think that makes a difference as well. So, I mean, there's barely any figure in ancient history where we have so many sources from within living memory all about the same person and especially during this apex of ancient biography. I mean, uh, earlier you have uh, reports about Socrates uh, and you have have maybe, well, especially two really strong ones, Plato and Xenophon. Uh, But, you know, from the time of the apex of ancient biography, you've mainly got uh, accounts of emperors and the Gospels,
1: right, and so then, in order to kind of compare um, ancient biographies with the Gospels, you then turn in part three to um, uh, a case study, multiple case studies. Mm-hmm. So, when you did these case studies, what did you find when you compared the Gospels with sources like Tacitus and, and Plutarch?
0: Sure, um, what I what I did first was what we often do with the gospels to to see how they use their sources although there's still disagreement on exactly which which one used which one and so on uh, i i i personally agree with the majority view on this which is that matthew and luke used mark and also a common source and and used some other sources as well but um having having said that uh, whatever the exact configuration is we can put some of these other ancient biographies in similar charts where you you compare one with the other especially when they're writing about the same the same person so i started with some biographies that were written about half a century after the the figure lived which is the usual dating for the gospels you know half a century give or take you know a few decades or well yeah a few depending on how you when you date things, I usually date Mark somewhere in the sixties, but seventy is about the usual dating. And then um, John, the usual dating, although there's a, quite a bit of of dis- disagreement on this, usually dated as the is the last of the four uh, first century gospels, and it's usually dated in the nineties of the first century. So. Somewhere around 65 years after Jesus' public ministry. So I I picked um, some that were written, give or take, about half a century after a particular emperor. And I I, I placed them side by side and looked for comparisons where they overlap. And I took the, I started with the Emperor Suetonius, uh, sorry, the Emperor Otho who's not so well known, but his biography was short, so it made it for an easy starting comparison. And then I looked at what Suetonius, who was a a very early second century Roman historian, wrote about him, and also what Tacitus wrote in his histories about Otho, and also what Plutarch wrote in his biography of Otho. And some overlapping information from uh, one of his other biographies. And I I put these into charts, and what I found was about 50 points of good correspondence between Suetonius and Tacitus, and about 50 points of uh, good correspondence between uh, Suetonius and Plutarch. And then, anyway, I'm going into too much detail. Um, I don't want to bore everybody, but just to say, I have the charts in the book for anybody who wants to to look at them. But just to say that when you put all this together, I mean, Suetonius, his biography of Otho is really short compared to some of his other biographies. It's it's only about two thousand words. It's 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 fewer than two thousand words. So it's about one fifth the length of Mark's Gospel. But we're talking about something like uh, two points of correspondence. In every paragraph. And this is just where we can test him to make sure he's not making things up, he's using sources. And if we I mean, if we extrapolate from that, if that's the kind of expectation that people had for ancient biography, then you know what would we expect with the Gospels? I mean, with Mark, you know, just extrapolating from that, that would be at least 250 points of correspondence. And Again, that's only based on where we can test Suetonius with his uh, with parallel sources. So all that is just to say that when ancient biographers wrote in this period, they especially were seeking to write uh, based on actual events. Now, this is a little bit different again from uh, what you have, a, you know, maybe half a millennium earlier. It's different from what you have uh, some centuries later because you get to, um, hagiography in late antiquity, and you know they they uh, they do things up a bit more. But in in this period, you know they they they'll edit things, they'll arrange things, they'll choose what they include because they want to make certain points, and and we need to take all that into account. But they're not supposed to make up event, events. They're supposed to depend on what's actually there. And that being the case, the Gospels as full-length biographies of a, of a real figure, uh, and not just any real figure, but a real figure who lived within living memory not that long before, um, that, that tells us something. We don't have any novels in antiquity that I know of written about a real historical figure within living memory. But we do have plenty of biographies. And you know, seeing the gospels that way helps us to. It helps set a default expectation for them.
1: Yes. Yeah. And that was such a, a helpful and um, yeah, just very informative section. So then you go on to tackle two uh, objects, like objections to defining the gospels as historical biographies, and those two are the records of miracles, and then also just the gospel of john in general why did you feel like it was important to address these two objections
0: well sometimes those are the well those are the objections that i hear most often to the gospels being potentially reliable ancient biographies sometimes people will say well yes they're ancient biographies uh, or maybe ancient historiography but unlike unlike most analogies that we might propose for them these can't be reliable. And one of the arguments is um, is the argument that they include miracles. Now scholars historical Jesus scholars range from those who are minimalists, they only accept what they think they can prove, to maximalists who want to accept everything um, that, that they can't disprove. <laughs> but which actually is a lot. But usually what we do with historical data, uh, if if we're not starting from a faith perspective or an anti-faith perspective, usually what we do, we look for what's most probable based on the evidence that we have. Now, the sources themselves are evidence. I mean, if we've got ancient biographies and this was the way people usually wrote, that itself constitutes a form of evidence. But we still need to evaluate the sources because, you know, They did have some flex room and details when you compare ancient biographies. That's not to say that any given biography took all the flex room they they could have, but some some took considerable flex flex room. So we need to look at them on a case-by-case basis. But in terms of Jesus as a miracle worker, the vast majority of um, historical Jesus scholars— do acknowledge that Jesus was experienced by his contemporaries as a miracle worker. That is, whether they believe in actual miracles or not, they do believe that his contemporaries believed he was a miracle worker and that some of them recovered from things and uh, that people were helped when they uh, believed that he cast spirits out of them or whatever. Now, uh, I do believe in actual miracles, but that's beside the point when we're just asking the historical question as to whether people could have experienced this or not, because we have plenty of examples elsewhere in history of people who uh, experienced these things, these kinds of things. You can't, you can't write about the life of, say, Simon Kimbangu, who was um, known for a ministry of healing and exorcism until he was... Um, imprisoned by the Belgian authorities in the Belgian Congo in the in the early twentieth century. You can't write about him without you know including reports about that. Or Rasputin. Now I don't particularly like Rasputin, but I mean you can't you can't write about that part of Russian history without talking about Rasputin and how the you know the Tsar's family thought that um their son was helped when Rasputin was there and, and so on. Uh, there, there are a lot of different figures in history, whether you like them or dislike them, where you just can't write about it without without dealing with those things. If Jesus was known as a healer and an exorcist, you can expect that there will be accounts of that. And in fact, I have a whole other book on this, like eleven hundred pages. But just going through, um, you know, globally accounts of these kinds of things today the same kinds of things you have reported in the gospel, we have pretty much the same kinds of things reported all over the world today by eyewitnesses who claim to have experienced these things. Sometimes with the, the healings in particular, we have medical documentation for these things. So you can say, well, I don't believe this, this happened divinely. I want to explain it some other way. But it's not a reason to dismiss uh, that that this is based on genuine memories about a person in the same uh, vein there are people who object to the Gospels being reliable because they say, well the Gospel of John, look how how different that is from Mark and the sources that follow Mark. and so since they're different, you can't say they're both historically reliable. I, I have a 1600 page commentary on John where I go into that in more detail. so again, I didn't spend a whole lot of space. On this in in this book, but I did something that I didn't do in the commentary on John, and that is that I I laid out some of the differences, but I also made a chart of the overlaps, and the overlaps are so significant. I mean, it's clear they're not writing novels; <laughs> they're they're not they're not going from the same sources. Uh, so there's a lot that one omits that the other includes, but they are. Um, They're writing about the same person. Now, their perspectives, their approach is different. They're they're writing from different vantage points. But where you have uh, the most differences in detail are in the account of the passion. Uh, You know, the, the story of Jesus' death and the events most immediately leading up to that. And my own approach is I think that John is... He's a good storyteller, and he's surprising people. Uh, some others think, well, you know, they, it's based on the testimony of the beloved disciple, and he just remembers things differently. And then other people, well, yeah, there's different uh, different approaches to it. But the overlap is so significant that, again, I think that that should be taken into account. W- what one scholar pointed out was that if we had uh, we had just the the Synoptic Gospels—Matthew, Mark, and Luke—and then eventually we ended up uh, somebody discovering, like, like the d- discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Somebody discovered the, the Gospel of John. People would go wild. They'd say, "Whoa! Look! Now we have an alternative account. It's also from the first century." How do we how do we explain these differences? But people would also be very interested in the historical information in John. Um, I know some people. Uh, Paul Anderson and some others who are really working on the question of history in the gospel of John My doctoral supervisor at Duke D. Moody Smith actually specialized a lot in that, but uh, yeah, that just a brief, a brief treatment of that.
1: Right. Yeah. And again, a a very helpful section. I'm glad you kind of paint the objections and then help to answer those. Um, And then, you know, speaking of how information is passed down and, the transmission of oral traditions, you then end with the topic of memory studies. So what should our listeners know about how memory studies can relate to the Gospels?
0: Sure. There are different approaches to memory studies, and there's actually some debate going on. Uh, And part of it is that people are talking about different kinds of memory. You've got psychological memory of an individual and you have social memory of a community and both are relevant here but in the just to talk about them briefly i mean psychological memory is relevant to the question would eyewitnesses actually have remembered anything after 30 years or 40 years you know by the by the time people say oh we've got to write this stuff down would eyewitnesses have remembered these things or would they have remembered them long enough for them to become you know passed down in tradition people who were writing ancient biography and historiography usually consulted eyewitnesses when they could. And it looks like Luke makes a claim to that in Luke chapter 1 in his, in his historical preface, that he consulted eyewitnesses or at least got as close back to the eyewitnesses as he could. But in terms of the disciples, people tend to remember things that are very dramatic, that are um, very they consider very important. Now, if you saw somebody raised from the dead or blind eyes opened or, or whatever, chances are that would get your attention, at least the first time or second time. The The disciples, uh, usually we remember after, after a, a year, we just remember maybe The things that are most significant to us. Obviously, we don't remember what we had for lunch last Tuesday, or we don't remember all the conversations we had, but we remember some things. We don't always remember, well, we usually don't remember them in a particular sequence. Uh, We usually remember them more by the place they happened, or, you know, the memory is not perfect, but it's sufficient for ordinary day to day purposes. Now, after five years, Normally, the things that we thought were really significant, we've forgotten about half of those. But the forgetting curve seems to level off after that, so that you know, thirty years later, you probably still remember a good bit of what you remembered after after five years. Um, and I could give examples of that, but um, just I'm just summarizing this. So, so uh, going on to to communal memory. Uh, we know a lot about disciples back then, how they passed on information. We have we have considerable evidence for that, both from Jewish sources and from Greek sources. Some people say, "Well, no, the Jewish sources are all late." That's actually not true. I mean, Josephus, who's writing in the first century, talks about you know how it was when he was growing up, and talks about how carefully Jewish people memorized the Torah. Uh, that was probably mostly oral memory. So it wasn't just uh, writing things down, and it wasn't just people who were literate. Uh, I, I could go into a lot more detail just with uh, ancient examples of this. Some people were really astonishing with their memories, just like you have a few people like that today. And uh, some cultures particularly emphasize individual memory. And I have a quite a bit of evidence for that in antiquity as well, but just to say that um, there could be there could be a good bit that would be remembered, and especially things like uh, like proverbs, short, succinct statements that Jesus would have made, uh, parables. People would often remember the storyline. There, you're not going to remember the wording as well, but. You know, we're not talking about verbatim memory. We're talking about remembering the basic thrust of the meaning, the basic thrust of the events. Uh, in terms of uh, remembering things word for word, that's that's just not very common unless you practice it over and over again, which ancient disciples typically did. But uh, they wouldn't do that with everything. Like with parables, you can compare them from one gospel to another. The wording is going to be different, but the substance is normally the same or or very very close. So. We have, uh, we have that. In terms of communal memory, uh, as it becomes social memory, often things get condensed into uh, the form that's most useful for those who are recounting the stories and, and recounting the sayings and so forth. Um, but we also need to keep in mind there's a distinction often made in terms of uh, orality studies and oral historiography A distinction is made between uh, oral history and oral tradition. Oral history is the period within living memory. That's the period when eyewitnesses were alive or those who knew the eyewitnesses were alive. And that's usually considered a period from 60 to 80 years. And and usually somewhere around uh, the 40-year mark, like halfway through, is, is the number of witnesses start to die off. you have have some people start writing things down. And we do have that with the Gospels at about that point. Uh, But all the Gospels are within that, you know, they're they're all less than 80 years. They're all within the um, the period of living memory. You get to the second century, uh, you have people writing things in the second century about Jesus. Those are past the point of living memory. Um, you, you have at the very beginning of the second century, you have people who may not be within living memory of Jesus himself, but they're within living memory of when the Gospels were written, and so they tell us some things about the writing of the Gospels. But th- the four the four Gospels we have from the first century themselves are all written within living memory of Jesus' lifetime. So again, by the standards we use. For studying ancient biography, these are really important sources, and we actually know a lot more about Jesus than a lot of New Testament scholars. A lot of my peers think we know, and uh, I. <clears throat> in, in, in what I'm doing in this, I mean, I do come from a faith perspective, but just from a purely historiographic perspective, we have a lot of information about Jesus. And I think that sometimes we underestimate that and we, we sell it short, and we should, we should examine the Gospels with greater confidence in what we can learn about Jesus there.
1: Yes, and that is why this book, I believe, is just so helpful, um, really showing and putting forth such a great argument that the canonical Gospels are historically reliable ancient biographies. So I'm so glad. This book was written. Thank you so much for taking the time to do all the research and um, yeah, to to do all the hard work of writing this book. Um, It's one of the few page turners that I've read that's like over 500 pages, but I commend it to our audience. I think everybody should go and read this, especially those who are interested in gospel studies. But before we go, Dr. Keener, would you mind just sharing uh, maybe what you're working on next?
0: Sure. Um I have a first Peter commentary on the way that was kind of an unexpected project uh, it was <laughs> it was fun, but I wasn't expecting to write it but there was a, for the Lambeth conference they they got together some scholars to work on first peter and once I had my material together, I went ahead and just wrote a commentary on it um, but also um, right now, I am working on a commentary on mark for the International Critical Commentary Series. And, you know, I'd already written a commentary on Matthew some years ago and the commentary on John, as I mentioned earlier, and some other books that, that related to, to these things. But I'm realizing now, wow, you know, I was reading Mark through the grid of Matthew too much. Mark really makes a distinctive contribution and just uh, catching up on some of the literary studies in Mark as well as exploring uh, some of the ancient context, I mean things that haven't been explored much, like when the, uh, in Mark chapter two, the paralyzed man is let down through the roof, it's like, "Well, how's that going to work?" And, and this crowd at the door made me want to go study Galilean architecture, so you know dealing with that, uh, looking at you know the, just a lot of the accounts in Mark how would this How would this look in Galilee? and then, of course, Mark is writing it for his own audience, but trying to trying to balance both you know what Mark is doing for his audience and looking back uh, to see where it where it reflects uh, where we can see it actually reflecting its original Galilean milieu. This is so fun. It's going to take me a few years to complete, and so it's going to take a long time to come out, but um, it will be worth worth the time. The the predecessor volume uh, by Ezra Gould came out in 1925. So I'm going to try to uh, hopefully finish this in time for the centennial, but um, it's a very fun uh, study.
1: Wow. Well, I'm very excited for that and just so grateful for your scholarship. Thank you, Dr. Keener, for taking the time to join us today. And to our listeners, This has been this edition of New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host, and until next time, take up and read.